Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline from your host. So grateful as always that you're here with me this week. And just a housekeeping note, if any of you live in Atlanta, please come by the convention center. I will be appearing at the Atlanta Travel and Adventure Show. If any of you live in the Bay Area, You want to go to Santa Clara because I'll be there for the Bay Area Travel and Adventure Show. It's the same group of people. We're like a traveling circus. All right. This is going to be a very special show because we're going to be concentrating on travel memoirs, books about people's adventures out in the world. And my first guest today has had quite an adventure, many adventures, but one of which he discusses in his book, Farewell, Mr. Puffin, A Small Boat Voyage to Iceland. His name is Paul Heine. Hey, Paul, welcome to the Frommer Travel Show. Pauline, how nice to hear from you, and uh, I'm very pleased to be with you. Well, I was so pleased to read this book. It's absolutely fascinating. I've learned so much. And, and this was not your first rodeo. You have taken these types of involved, complex, long boat, boat voyages before, right? Yeah, yes, I, I have. Uh, this, is to, um, the, the, this book relates to a voyage to Iceland from the UK, which is, right. not, which is not very far. Um, but a, a few years ago, I did sail all the way down the length of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, all the way to Cape Horn on the southern tip of uh, South America. And that was an 18,000-mile round trip, uh, of which I sailed 11,000 miles on my own. And that was yet another book. <laughs> called, right. <laughs> I can't stop writing them. Uh, yet another book called One Wild Song. Uh, so, yes, I, I, I've had quite a few of these adventures under sail in, uh, over the years. Well, in this one, you start out by giving a little bit of the history of the people before you who took this voyage from the coast of, of England and Scotland, and they were mostly fishermen. Can you, can you tell a little bit about that history to our listeners? Yes, I, I can. We, we live on the east coast of England, uh, about a uh, hundred miles north of London, uh, in a small village uh, which has a river uh, and a small harbour. And uh, I, I came across just by accident. I, I was reading uh, history of our local church, and it just happened to mention that in the twelfth and thirteenth century. No less than 150 boats were leaving mm. our little harbour to sail to Iceland every summer. And wow. I just thought this was quite astonishing because uh, we haven't even got 130 boats in our harbour any longer, <laughs> let, any of them, let alone any of them go, going up to Iceland. Uh, and what they were doing is they were taking to Iceland corn uh, and wheat uh, and stuff like that, and they were bringing back salted fish. It, it was a regular annual trade. So, I, you know, I, I started to dig a bit further. And uh, you've got to remember that they were doing this before. Uh, you, you know, they just, uh, they just had a compass and, and that yeah. was it. Uh, all, all, the, all the navigation charts you need to, to be able to safely navigate, especially uh, on the north coast of Scotland, which is highly dangerous, very tricky waters. They didn't have any of that. And I thought, crikey, I mean, you know, it, for, it's comparatively easy for me. But for them, it must have been a huge adventure. But they did it for years and years and years, and it was quite a regular trade. Uh, well, you know, for I just, centuries. I, yes, I just became absolutely fascinated by it. 
Well, and, and, and then, and, and you follow in their, well, I can't say footsteps, you follow in their follow wake. Follow in their wake, yes, their wake, yes. <laughs> and you come across towns that can only be described as depressed and depressing. Because they've lost that that heritage, they've lost the fishing trade, right? Yes, I I don't know how much of of this would apply in the U.S., but we used to have a huge fishing trade, particularly in the in the North Sea, which was based on herring, and yes. the herring used to appear every summer in vast numbers, and. Entire towns, uh, we're talking now in the 19th century, early 20th century, uh, entire towns were built around the herring trade. It was big business. And then in in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, the herring suddenly declined and more or less disappeared. Uh, They were probably overfished. Although right. there may have been other reasons, we, we've no idea. But all, all these places, all these towns that, that, that owed their prosperity to the herring started to just crumble away like towns do. And a lot of them, I'm afraid, have become uh, rather depressed places with, with a lot of unemployment. Yeah. And it's very difficult to see a, a way forward. Um, yeah. And of course, the, the other thing that happened to them, some of them thrived as, uh, as seaside resorts, as, as holiday destinations. But of course, once cheap air travel came in, people in England could travel to the rest of Europe quite easily and very cheaply. Mm. And so that right. was another thing that happened and, and, and caused, caused these uh, communities to decline. So it's a sad story, really. Yeah, and I thought it was fascinating how you, you wove in the entire history of Europe because at one point this was the second time that fishing declined because when the Protestant Revolution happened, Catholic, <laughs> former Catholics realized they didn't have to eat fish every Friday. <laughs> That's right. There was a huge, a huge decline in the, in, the, in the consumption of fish simply because of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Mm. So you're following this historic route. You go down the coast of England to Scotland. You go to the Orkney Islands. And then you go to the pharaohs. And one of the things that makes the book so fascinating, at least to this novice, is you really get uh, deeply into what it takes to sail a small boat that way. And, you know, it just the discussion of the tides was fascinating to me. I had always thought of the tides as being controlled by the moon. And yet you talk about, say, the Faroe Islands, where the tides are much faster than they are in other parts of the world. Yes, why, yes. why is that? I don't know. It's a very, very good question. The, 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 the tides in the Faroe Islands are absolutely ferocious. Um, what, what is happening uh, I, up there, I think, is that um, as the tide in the Atlantic changes, Huge amounts of water are pushed northwards through and between these islands. Uh, you know, if you watch rocks on a riverbed, for example, as the river flows through it, uh, once it finds a gap in the rocks, it appears to speed up. Uh, and that's what's happening in the Faroe Islands. All this massive Atlantic Ocean is being pushed northwards by the tide and then southwards by the tide when the tide mm. turns. But what, what's peculiar about it is that although the, the, the flow is of an incredible speed, uh, the tide hardly goes up and down. <laughs> you know, we're used to the tide rising and the tide falling, but you right. get these ferocious currents 
but without any rise and fall of the tide. And that's what, that's what makes the pharaohs very odd. But the t- I mean, you, you have to respect these uh, b- because um, if, you, if you get yourself in a situation where you have a very strong wind, uh, and that is a part of the Atlantic Ocean where winds can be very strong, if you right. get a very, very strong wind blowing in the opposite direction to the fast-flowing tide, that is when you get very, very steep and dangerous waves uh, to be avoided yeah. at all costs. So it does make the Faroe Islands tricky to navigate. And to some extent, although perhaps not as fierce, but to some extent, the um, um, Orkney Islands are, are rather similar. Huh. Well, the Faroe, both of them sounded absolutely spectacular. The well, Orkney very, di- well, very different, very different, very, very different. Huh. Yeah. Okay, well, how do they differ? And, and if you could tell a little bit about the history with Churchill, too, and the Orkneys, I thought that was mind-blowing. Yes, the, the Orkney is a is a collection of uh, islands off the north coast of Scotland, and uh, they're they're fa- they're fa- apart from apart from one of them, they're fairly low lying, uh, and because uh, the uh, the Gulf Stream, the remnants of the Gulf Stream, uh, flow through them, uh, although they're you know well north, um, th- they don't have the harsh climate um, that they would if they were say. Um, uh, well, as an example, they, they will be the same latitude as Labrador, for example, huh. which spends okay. most of its time iced up in the winter. Mm. But uh, in in the Orkney Islands, the, the climate is, is is moderated by the uh, by the Gulf Stream, so they're quite green. Uh, so mm. stuff stuff grows there very well, and the soil happens to be quite rich. So they're, they're islands which can farm and, and sustain ah. themselves in that way. The Faroe Islands, by contrast, are just great big lumps of rock mm. uh, with no trees. And uh, they have got a, a covering, uh, a thin covering of topsoil. So you do get greenness, but, but you can't cultivate them in the same way you can cultivate the Orkney Islands. So they're, they're, very, they're very different in that sense. What happened in the Orkney Islands is that um, there, there is a... Uh, uh, a huge expanse of water, which is surrounded by the islands, scores Scapa Flow. And this was hugely important in the two world wars right. uh, because it made a very, very secure uh, base for fleets to gather, uh, in huh. particular the German fleet in the First World War uh, and the British fleet in the, in the Second World War. But the problem was that um, submarines, because uh, the waters are very deep, submarines could get in between the islands and cause mm-hmm. horrendous destruction. So what, <laughs> what Winston Churchill did was he ordered the prisoners of war, who were mostly Italian, he ordered them to build barriers between the islands. Right. Uh, and they're known to this day as the Churchill Barriers. Uh, and it's great for the islands because it means you can drive around. But for people huh. who are sailing, <laughs> it means you've got to go a very, very long way <laughs> right. to get past Churchill's barriers. So we sailors who go to Orkney are no fans of Churchill for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, these these barriers, will they be there forever or are they decaying? I mean, it's it's a while since World War Two, And is, they were built yes. by prisoners. I mean, yeah, but yeah. I guess they were strongly built. They were strongly built. I mean, the prisoners clearly knew what they were doing because they're still there. Because they, because they now form the roadways between the islands, they, you know, they are maintained and looked after. So I, I suspect right. they will be there for a very long time. Now, you name the book Farewell, Mr. Puffin, and there's a lot in the book about not only puffins, but other seabirds. And 
fascinating things. I, I, I know this isn't a nature show, but I would love it if you would tell our guests a little bit about, and I hope I'm pronouncing the name of these birds white, right, the gamuts. Mm. Well, uh, the gannets are quite common uh, on the on the northeast coast of England, and especially in, in uh, places like Iceland and, and the Faroe Islands. Uh, and these uh, gannets are incredible. Do you have them in the US? I don't know if you do. Uh, uh, you know, you're talking to the wrong person. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> they might. Okay, all right. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, they've got a beautiful uh, yellow, um, uh, yellow. They're, they're a huge white bird with a, a yellow marking uh, across the head and, and, and down the neck. And how these birds catch fish, which is what they feed on, how these birds catch fish is, is to um, fly at a considerable height. Uh, and then when they spot the fish, they go into uh, a, a vertical dive, a high-speed vertical dive, because, uh, of course, the fish can't look upwards, so they can't see them coming. And when the gannet hits the water, it might be doing something like 70 miles an hour. Right. You, you uh, describe uh, uh, it like being a bullet hitting yes, the water. Yes, it is. And um, they've got a special protection. They've got a second eyelid which comes into play, which closes uh, as soon as they hit the water at this incredible speed uh, to stop them uh, um, damaging their eyes. And then they spear the the fish and uh, and job done. Yeah. And to see them doing this with such, you know, it, it, it's the highest precision bombing you can you know imagine. We think we're clever at being able to bomb targets. It's absolutely nothing, <laughs> nothing compared with what the gannets can do. Right. And, and, you, and they dive down, and you see, there's a splash. And then if you just wait... Up they come, and they'll have a big fat fish in their beak. Amazing well, to watch. Beyond the second island, you said they also have padding in, mm. in specific places to keep them from damaging themselves yes, yeah, as they yeah. hit the water at this yeah. velocity. Yeah, Absolutely yeah. fascinating. And then the, the fulmar? Uh, the fulmar, fulmars are, a, are, are a, a similar bird, but they are more, they are a bit more like a seagull. Uh, than uh, than the gannet. The gannet is quite distinctive. You you could easily <coughs> mistake the uh, the former for a seagull. And and they spit on other birds to damage their wings and cause them to drop. Yeah, it's not very nice, is it? Really fascinating, <laughs> <You've got> to... <laughs> terrible, but fascinating. If you come across fulmar nests, I think you, you you've got to keep your distance, otherwise they, they will. They will spit on you. It hasn't happened to me, but apparently it's pretty disgusting. But it is their way of uh, of of disabling other birds because if you, if you spit on the wings, then then you know other birds can't use their wings, and uh, yeah, that's, how they, right. that's how they do it. Now, part of this voyage was uh, in search of puffins, and you give charming descriptions of these beautiful birds. Uh, but what's happening to the puffins? Well, what is happening to the puffins? That's what we want to know, and that's what I want to know, really. I, I, um, I mean, I don't want to give the game away, but my puffin right. spotting didn't go too well, let's put it that right. way, because yeah. there are clearly fewer puffins uh, than these. When I used to sail up the west coast of Ireland, for example, virtually every day you would, uh, you, you would um, sail through uh, a mass of these, you know, like a crowd at a sporting event. They were all sitting there bombing around on the water. And they are becoming more and more difficult to spot. And wherever you go, if you go to the Faroes, they say, oh, yeah, there aren't as many puffins as there used to be. If you go to Scotland, they say, oh, not as many puffins. Iceland, same story. And um, the, there are two, two possible theories as to, as to what is happening. 
the obvious one uh, is climate change because they are dependent for their food on on what they can find at sea. They they only eat on what they catch at sea. Yeah, they, they only eat what they catch at sea. And if the sea temperature changes, then the stuff that they're trying to catch shifts either sure. further north or further as appropriate. So if, if sea temperatures are changing, their hunting ground is changing, and so they're sort of moving away uh, following the, the, the prey. The other problem is uh, one of their favorite foods, and if you see photographs of, of puffins, They've always got those little fishes hanging in their beaks. Mm, Um, And those are sand eels. And uh, sand eels uh, are very important to the puffin, but sand eels are also very important to the fertilizer industry uh, and the animal feed industry. Ah. And they are being fished. On mm. an industrial scale, right. um, Denmark in particular have got huge fishing fleets which huh. go in search of the sand eels, yeah. and they really so, are—they really are clearing them up. They're, mm. they're, you know, they're clearing them up from the seabeds, uh, and I—I I suspect that is one good That's reason why the it, puffin yeah. is is going hungry. Yeah. You talk about looking into their mouths or their beaks, and it, it, it looks almost like the inside of a sardine tin because the fish are lined up yeah, in yeah. that that way. How yes, does, they are. And that's a and it's a mystery how that it happens, is a mystery. Right? It's one of the great mysteries. I mean, academics who who, who research these things uh, have tried to come up with all manner of theories as to they they, they do they, they hold them in their beaks. One is pointing one way. And then the next way is pointing the other, like sardines in a tin. You know, that's how you get that's how you get so many into a tin because you put head to tail, head to tail, head to tail. And 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 the puffin can do this in its beak, and no one has worked out exactly why or exactly how. Uh, but they yeah. do. It's astonishing. Uh, it was astonishing. So you you end up in Iceland, and we'll we will just we have just a couple more minutes. But one of the most fascinating things to me was you talk a little bit about. Icelandic creativity, and I didn't realize this about the people there, that they they read more than the rest of us. And in fact, uh, they read so much. There was an article, I think you talked about how there was a family where the the child and both parents were publishing books and to keep family harmony, they staggered their publication dates so they wouldn't be in competition. (laughs) There's a saying in Iceland, if you you walk down the street uh, and and you bump into someone who um, who isn't writing a book? Uh, give, <laughs> give them five minutes, and they will be. Um, they, they are. They're, they're great bookworms. I mean, there are so many uh, bookshops in Reykjavik. Reykjavik is a small place. It's a really, small, really small place, Reykjavik. But there are so many bookshops, uh, and in, you know, everyone. <laughs> you go in there, and there's lots of quite young people who are sitting with their laptops typing away. And you know, <gasps> yes, there's another one writing a novel. I, 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 I wonder if it's something to do with the long. Dark winters. Don't forget that um, in in the in in the depths of winter in Iceland, uh, there will be no daylight before ten thirty in the morning, wow. and it will be pitch dark again before three o'clock in the afternoon. Right. Uh, of course, in midsummer it's exactly the reverse. You know, it's, it's daylight all year round. I wonder if it's something to do with that. But they have got this great storytelling tradition, you know, which comes from the sagas. 
uh, from the Viking days of, of sitting around and telling each other tales. And I, I suspect it's a bit of that that, that, mm. that endures. But they are, well, they are great writers and great readers. Well, you feel that reading your book, even though you're not Icelandic, it feels like sitting around with a friend hearing tales mm. of their fascinating journeys, which is something so lovely during these pan- this pandemic mm. time. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Paul, both for the read and for this interview. Thank you very much. A great, great pleasure. Thank you. Our second guest is Rosecrans Baldwin. He is the author of an an intriguing new book called Everything Now, Lessons from the City-State of Los Angeles. Hey, Rosecrans, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So at the very beginning of this podcast episode, I said that we had authors of two travel memoirs appearing today, but that's not quite right for your book. Your book (laughs) is about a place and it's from your point of view, but you also interview a lot of other folks who live in Los Angeles to get their take on the city and you fill us in with many often quite shocking facts about the city of Los Angeles. How would you describe the genre of your book? Yeah, that's an interesting question, uh, because I think it's a little bit of a hybrid of sorts. It yeah. is, it's definitely, I think the classic definition would just be narrative nonfiction. You know, it is the story. I, I spent about two and a half to three years researching and doing all the reporting for this book. And like you mentioned, it was, you know, driving my way across Los Angeles um, everywhere, you know, from Ventura down to San Diego, every place in between and leading me to all kinds of strange adventures, just trying to get a handle on what it feels like and what it is like to live in Los Angeles these days. And so I, it's funny, it's my previous nonfiction book, which was called Paris, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down, uh, <laughs> was more of a travel book. It was the, a book on what it was like to live and work in, a, in Paris, specifically a French advertising agency, as someone coming over from the States. And so this book is a lot more, I guess, of a sort of an adventurous kind of investigation of what it means to be in Los Angeles at, in this time. Well, and what it means is pretty darn complex. You call the city a city-state. What does that mean? It's a pretty interesting concept. It's kind of been around forever, to be honest, since we've had... I, the... I think of Athens, ancient yeah. Athens, or That's even right. Ancient Rome. Athens, or Sparta, or today, places like Singapore, right? Or mm, even yeah. Vatican City. The idea is that you have a community that... Um, brings together a lot of people that may not share the same language, may not share the same religion, but have certain interests in common, whether they have to do with family or business, culture. And they have found a way to sort of build or develop this community that has sort of a sovereignty to it, that has an identity to it. It is a, a way that humans sort of organize themselves that's bigger than just a metropolis, but it's smaller than, say, the nation states that we have carved the world into, really only, though, for about 400 years. You know, the yeah. nations are, are a pretty new invention, whereas the city-state has been around a lot longer. 
Right, right. And you you make the point that the economy of Los Angeles is more important than the economy of nation states, many nation states, and, and that the, the population of the city, like New York City's, I, I, I got a little hometown pride going when I read this. You say the population is bigger than that of 40 states, which is the same for New York City. But it's when I'm in Los Angeles and, and you, you put your thumb on it at one point in the book, you said Los Angeles lacks the coziness of uh, a New York City or a Chicago or a San Francisco. I, I think you might have taken that from one of the people you interviewed. To me, Los Angeles has never felt like a city in a certain way. It, it's just so diverse and spread out and it feels centerless to me as a visitor. And is, when you're saying your hometown, are you is your hometown New York City? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> Los Angeles. So Los Angeles is hard to pin down. You know, I think yeah. in the book, I say it's sometimes easier to understand as a climate than as a city because <laughs> if Los Angeles County is about 12 million people. Los, greater Los Angeles is 20 million people. Uh, wow. That's spread across thousands upon thousands of acres. That includes a massive natural forest, a national park. It includes the largest sort of urban park in the Santa Monica mountain range. It includes, let's see, um, I think I was, t- I, mean, I don't have this off the top of my head, but I want to say that in the public school system, there are approximately upwards of 100 languages used just to wow. reflect the diversity of the population here. So it's just so like you were saying, you know, when you visit here, when anyone visits here, when I first visited here before my wife and I moved here, there was a sense that it just never ended. And this is like you were saying in my interviews for the book, one gentleman I spoke to described it as being almost more similar to the internet. The way that you can go on huh. Instagram and you can just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And he said it can feel like that, especially when you're driving down one of the big avenues or where you are going east-west. And you know, if you don't blink <laughs> for, for about an hour <laughs> and a half, suddenly you wind up in Palm Springs and you don't realize that things have changed along the way. You know, Sometimes these neighborhoods that look similar are actually completely different cities with completely different populations. And so I think what got the book started for me was a sense that after we moved here, two weird things happened. One, One's not weird at all. One is that I was just really confused. I was confounded. I was sort huh. of saying like, what am I doing here? And what is this place? But the second thing that didn't make any sense to me, because I don't have any roots in LA. I'm not from LA. Right. I grew up on the East Coast. Is that I felt at home here. And that didn't make mm-hmm. any sense whatsoever. And I think that was one of the impulses that got me going. Well, You do touch on some of the things I think about when I think about L.A. For example, in the in the second chapter, you talk about the fact that it seems to be a population that is more drawn to self-help movements that that, that those flourish in L.A. Oh, yeah. (laughs) To some degree, with the amount of people here, almost everything flourishes in L.A. And that's not just, you know, that, you know, I was, um, gosh, I was going for a walk this morning and a neighbor who lives further up the canyon than I do where I live uh, has apparently been growing corn in their yard. Uh, He's, you know, or she or starting a, a corn field. And I thought, well, 
I guess we are in Kansas, you know, you can sort of, <laughs> all kinds of things grow here, including though, right. to your question, a deep interest in new age, self-help, you know, and that's been going on for, gosh, for a very long time. It's not just about crystals and tarot cards or even palm readers, you know, there's a sense that LA can sometimes be an incubator for new ideas. And now some of those new ideas can be pretty woo-woo um, and maybe flimsy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in the second chapter, quite a bit of it is about a group that I sort of found my way into accidentally and can't say that I particularly enjoyed the experience. But um, no, it sounded horrible. Yeah, <laughs> it, <laughs> I have, to, I have was, to be uh, kind of devastating. careful what I say here um, to avoid litigation, frankly. The, sure. uh, the fact yes. checking process that we went through with this book was pretty extraordinary and, and certainly huh. employed a strong legal team. But in any mm. case, this was a group that had revived a self-help group that was enormous in the United States in the 70s and the 80s, uh, but went out of business, I want to say, in the early 90s, uh, in part due to uh, litigation because of people having, let's say, adverse experiences in, right. in their care. Uh, and there's a group that uh, some people have revived it in sort of a basement near the airport. And I had been told by somebody saying, hey, you know, if, if you really want to seek out uh, some transformation, this is a group to get involved with. Uh, so, yeah, I spent a pretty dark week with them. But I think to your point, I think there is a sense here because a lot of things about living in Los Angeles, it's not very easy to hide things in Los Angeles. It is easy to hide money. <laughs> People, I think there's wealth buried all over the place. But right. the fact is, you know, we have the nation's largest homeless problem. We have the income inequality that is really sort of striking so much of the country and so much of the world right now. In Los yeah. Angeles is very sort of uh, naked on display. And at the same time, People wear, do wear their ambitions on their sleeves. They wear their hearts on the sleeves. We have the dream factory of Hollywood. So for good and bad, you know, you see so much is on view in Los yeah. Angeles. And I think that kind of striving, but also sort of the naked impulse behind that striving uh, really connects to people wanting change and transformation. And then that can then lead to sort of um, the, sort of the side of it that is self-help. Right. Well, I was going to ask you about the, the homeless issue. On one of my last visits to Los Angeles, I had rented a car because I, you, you can't really be in Los Angeles without a car. But I was That's meeting right. I was meeting somebody for lunch and it had been my New Year's resolution that if it was less than two miles, I would try and walk. And so I walked and I walked right into the heart of what is called Skid Row. Sure. And it was like a, a scene out of Dante's Inferno. It, sure. it just was people who were suffering so deeply and living in such terrible, squalid conditions. It really was shocking. And at another point in the book, you say that Los Angeles is one of the most segregated communities uh, in the U.S. And so you can have this type of deep poverty in one area and then incredible mansions in the next. And yet there are people who are emerging from uh, Skid Row who you'd speak to who are trying to make a difference, who are trying to work with the population there. Can you talk a little bit about those issues? Oh, sure. I mean, 
Gosh, segregation is such an enormous contemporary problem in the United States. And I, yeah. and I believe the study that I cite in the book, Los Angeles is actually, I think, 10th in the country in terms of metropolises. I think Minneapolis might be number one and New York might be about number three. And there are certainly pockets in Los Angeles where it is so striking. If you are in, for example, northern Santa Monica, I believe northern Santa Monica is actually one of the most segregated places in the United States. And again, Chicago's up there, obviously, as well. But in in Skid Row, Skid Row is is a neighborhood, you know, in Los Angeles. It's not it's not just a nickname for a place, and it has right. uh, substantial history. And in Skid Row, there are different communities of people. There are obviously there are people, first of all, who live in Skid Row full time, and that is their neighborhood. And then there sure. is this enormous homeless population. And within the homeless population, there are people who are transient, and there are people who are more homesteaders. And in the in the chapter where I because I spent quite a bit of time uh, around Skid Row and talking to people in Skid Row. And I was really fortunate enough to meet this extraordinary woman named Suzette Shaw, who is a activist and a poet and an artist. And formerly, she was an HR executive in Silicon Valley. But uh, as anything can happen to anybody, you know, her life took several turns uh, where eventually she found herself really scared um, and really worried about what was going to come of her because she was in Skid Row trying to fight for her life, basically. And Skid Row uh, can be a very predatory place and a very male place and dangerous. At the same time, I always like to talk about this a little bit because I think it's important to try to give some nuance to it. Uh, Because when I've walked around in Skid Row, gosh, it's just, there's a lot of suffering to be seen, a lot of despair. But there's also a lot of signs of people helping people. And that's everything from people within the community helping one another to social workers, to aid groups, to the inner, uh, there's a Skid Row Law Center. it's It's a thing that can be for me, sometimes dangerous to stigmatize because it suggests that it is an isolated issue and that we have taken people and put them in a place so we don't have to see them. And I unfortunately feel that is a lot of people's most desired attitude. You know, there's a long history in Los Angeles of trying to expel people that we don't like to have on our corners uh, because I, you know, I'll get off my soapbox in in a second, but the homelessness problem really is not only a problem about housing, but it's also a problem in our deinvestment in mental health facilities, in drug addiction treatment centers, and so on. But boy, is it, it's, it can be really awful. And at the same time, like I said, can be inspiring when you see some of the people uh, who are really doing extraordinary work there. Right. No, absolutely. So I think probably a lot of our listeners, when they hear Los Angeles, they think the entertainment industry. How does that weave into the fabric of the city? Well, it's certainly part of the story, right? It's it's hard to think about Los Angeles without thinking about Hollywood. The odd thing about that is that Almost nobody who lives in Los Angeles has anything to do with Hollywood or the entertainment industry. It is huh. an extraordinarily small piece of the 20 million people that live here. You know, so there. I, I think I make a joke in the book about how you can live in Los Angeles and have no greater connection with the movie or television or music industry than someone who you know lives in Lexington, Kentucky. Except occasionally you will run into you know, Timothy Oliphant at the grocery store. Um, But (laughs) I had this very lucky experience. I um, got to meet a young actor. Her name was Jen Tullock. And when I met her, she was sort of just 
in certain ways representative of a classic story of here is a young person who's come to LA to try to make it as an actor. Uh, but she also had a backstory. She was coming from an evangelical Christian background, actually from Kentucky. Uh, she also yeah. happened to be gay. And she had written this movie with another waitress friend of hers. And I had I was able to shadow her for about a year and a half. And in doing that, was able to go with her through the process of submitting their film. It got eventually got produced. It got made. Suddenly it wow. had Judith Light and Alec Baldwin were in it. And yeah. it got submitted to Sundance. And I was able to go to the Sundance Film Festival with them in Park City, Utah. And it's just to see all these sort of ups and downs, you know, the story of trying to make it. Yeah. The idea of trying to be, I think someone else that I interviewed made this comparison that to some degree, people, the reason the Hollywood sign, as weird as it is, perched up there on the hill one thing it does represent is the desire to be recognized, right? Because that's become now an icon of LA. Sure. And there is a desire, I think, for a lot of people to be as famous as that, you know, to be seen around the world as representative of this, of fame itself. Um, and that's, that's not going anywhere as an LA story. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it's an absolutely fascinating book. We only touched on a few strands of the, the different stories that you weave into it. But but uh, thank you so much, Rose Krantz, uh, for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. You're welcome. And thank you so much again for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. We're going to be taking off next week, so no podcast next week. But for those who are traveling, as I always say, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. No